0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about front-line theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Alan Jacobs is Distinguished Professor of the Humanities in the Honors Program at Baylor University. He serves as a contributing editor of the New Atlantis and is the author of several books, including The Book of Common Prayer, A Biography, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, and The Narnian, The Imagination of C.S. Lewis. His most recent essay appeared in Harper's Magazine and is titled The Watchman, What Became of the Christian Intellectuals? Professor Alan Jacobs, welcome to Thinking in Public. Writing recently at Harper's Magazine, Professor Alan Jacobs of Baylor wrote, quote, half a century ago, such figures existed in America, serious Christian intellectuals who occupied a prominent place on the national stage. They are gone now, he writes. It would be worth our time to inquire why they disappeared, where they went, and whether, should such a thing be thought desirable, they might return, end quote. Professor Jacobs behind an article like that, filled with uh, a great deal of reflection, but also a great deal of passion, Uh, there is something that explains how that article came to be. Can can you tell us that story?
1: Sure. Um, Interestingly enough, it was a request from an editor at Harper's Magazine, which is very surprising to me. Uh, Christopher Beha, uh, uh, a wonderful editor, a very fine writer as well, Um, and someone who I think has felt for some time that um, Harper's, uh, as a, a kind of a general interest monthly magazine uh, covering a wide range of cultural and social and political issues, um, wasn't doing a very good job of covering religion in America and uh, needed uh, its audience needed to hear um, a little bit more about uh, religion in America. and so, Chris and I sat down and, uh, you know, went back and forth about what some possible topics might be. And I threw out a few topics and this was the one that caught his attention. And so um, then that was when uh, uh, that was when my problems began because um, trying to condense a story that complex into 6,000 words was uh, one of the more challenging things that I've done as a writer.
0: Well, I can understand that, and uh, I appreciated the fact that your essay appeared in Harper's. I've been reading Harper's and The Atlantic kind of as a, as a duo uh, since I was in high school, and, uh, and both of them caught my attention. And it seems that having read uh, both of those magazines for about 40 years, that uh, every decade or so they all of a sudden wake up and realize they've missed the religion story. And uh, no. so uh, th- they come back to it again and again as if all of a sudden they've just had this, uh, this moment in which they recognize there are actually people out there who operate on very different intellectual terms. Millions and millions of them.
1: Uh, and uh, and so, yes, that perhaps there's this uh, spasm of, 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 of guilt or a sense of something neglected. Um, yeah. And then I, I suppose I was just, uh, uh, you know, blessed to be or cursed to be. But I think blessed to be the person that uh, that Christopher called on at that particular moment.
0: Well, I think I can understand why, and uh, your essay is extremely thoughtful. Uh, I responded to it in, in, with my own essay, and I know others have as well, but I, I began mm. with a, a real appreciation for what you had to say, and uh, I, I hope that the uh, the conversation thus far has, uh, has, has been fruitful from your side.
1: It has been fruitful, though it has been, it's been interesting to me to see how difficult it has been for some people to... To understand what I was trying to do the primary issue has been that uh, it's very difficult to get people to understand that when you refer to someone as an intellectual you're not paying them a compliment uh, and when you don't put them into that particular box that you are insulting them in some way um, I was using a, a specific definition of the intellectual that was uh, given by the uh, sociologist Carl Mannheim and and for Mannheim an intellectual was a social role Um, It's something that people could do badly. It's something that people who aren't very smart (laughs) might try to do and indeed might succeed in doing for a relatively limited audience. But it's the role of the interpreter, the person who's going to say, let me explain to you how all of this works. And in that sense, an intellectual is a little different than an activist or someone who's in charge of uh, or or responsible to a particular institution. Uh, So a pope, for instance, might be incredibly intelligent, incredibly learned, as Pope Benedict was and is, um, but not necessarily an intellectual in Mannheim's sense because – He's in charge of the church, and he has things that he has to do. He's not standing apart. He's not commenting and interpreting. He's an advocate, Um, and I think that was true of, of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He was an advocate. He was an activist, and so if you say, well, those people don't fit the Mannheim definition of intellectual, people hear that as an insult to often to figures whom they love and they revere. And so I've been I've been uh, that's been the most difficult part of it is to try to get people to accept that definition and to work within it.
0: Yeah, You know, my response was based upon a different concern. I I can see that concern. And uh, I think part of the problem with uh, an article like this is that people aren't going to operate primarily out of Mannheim's definition of an intellectual. They're going to operate out of a more popular understanding. And, uh, and I think yeah. that's true, yeah. not only of, of Christians who may have responded, but but honestly, the readers of Harper's who may have read it. But I Absolutely. think it's all, it also goes back to the fact that, uh, that this is not only the kind of angst that tends to show up in, uh, in Harper's every decade or so, but it tends to show up amongst intellectuals uh, pretty regularly. Mm. I mean, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on my bookshelf, I've got a host of uh, uh, of books and titles from the left, uh, such as Frank Faridi writing, you know, where have all the intellectuals gone? Or, or, right. or the kind of uh, approach taken by uh, by some on the left that uh, that, that there's been a complete uh, displacement of the elites and uh, and and they don't have mm-hmm. their rightful place. I, I grew up in a time in which you had um, uh, people my age. I, I'm I'm 57 now. Who uh, who when we got to college. Uh, we were uh, we were made familiar with the arguments uh, made by people like uh, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith and uh, and, and Daniel mm-hmm. Bell that, that intellectuals were mm-hmm. going to rule the world and of course both of them had proposals as to how exactly that would happen. Uh, Galbraith's right. proposal basically could be called the uh, I guess the Kennedy administration, uh, the best yeah. and the brightest, as Alberstein said. So is this something mm-hmm. that, that that's unique to uh, to asking about the Christian intellectuals or, or is this a larger question about intellectuals? In uh, in public life in, in Western nations right now,
1: yeah, it's you know, you're absolutely right that it is a larger question. Uh, I could uh, you you mentioned that you have several books of that sort on your bookshelf. Uh, Russell Jacoby's "The Last Intellectual" yes. is is one that I would mention because of that title, right? The last intellectuals, the sense that they're gone, and and I mention in my article only briefly Richard Hofstadter's famous book "Anti-Intellectualism in American Life." Which I think marked right there in the early 60s the, the the decline was was evident of the role of the intellectual in American life in general and and I think um, I think more than anything else, and again, this is something I tried to gesture at more than write about in detail, but I think that that had to do with the rise of uh, scientific authority, the sense that uh, that these were the people that we turned to to get answers to our most fundamental questions. And so uh, I mentioned briefly the the eulogies that were given to the uh, Hungarian-American physicist John von Neumann when he died in 1957, I think it was, 56 or 57, and 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 he got the kind of attention as you know someone who was setting the course for America that perhaps somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr might have aspired to a decade earlier, never quite got to, and so I think this the the of course you you say well isn't a scientist an intellectual?" Well, not really. Uh, In in one sense, yes. But in in another sense, the scientist has his or her own distinctive kind of claim. You know, we're not we're not sitting back and reflecting and thinking and reading and studying. We're studying. We are we are doing experiments. We are finding out what's true. And so therefore, you can rely on us and that that authority of the scientist was something that had become fairly dramatic in American life by the time that Hofstadter wrote. And so that's something that affects Christians, but it affects a whole world of people
0: as well. You know, you mentioned Richard Hofstadter, I I simply have to inject here, we could go in a thousand different directions, but I I, I do want to point Mm -hmm. out that uh, by the time you read his book on anti-intellectualism in American life and the paranoid style in American politics, it's clear. Mm that he doesn't believe there's a possibility of an intellectual who is not clearly on the left. And I don't don't mean in in, in kind of the center left. I mean the far left. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: No, and I think that's – and that's the same thing with Russell Jacoby two decades later writing The Last Intellectuals. What he's talking about is the end of a movement which was largely centered on partisan review. Uh, and other kind of organs of the, uh, uh, again, you know, the the from the, the the far liberal to the socialist to the Trotskyite um, left. That's that's where intellectuals are. What's interesting uh, about that is that I think precisely because they had no hope of any immediate social power, there was more of a genuinely intellectual culture happening on the right in the 50s and the 60s with people like largely the crowd surrounding William F. Buckley's National Review, which was a much more highbrow kind of uh, um, venue than than it is now. Um, And and that – I think there was a sense of trying to think through first political principles, not necessarily in ways that I would always agree with or even often agree with, but it was was a a place of a lot of intellectual energy. And I think that that kind of development of a kind of a a right intellectual culture was something that happened in part because – those were people who didn't think that they had a chance of entering into the conversations that the left was having.
0: And you know, one of the really interesting things about that is that uh, Buckley secured Russell Kirk as an ongoing columnist, mm-hmm. and uh, with, without it, we probably wouldn't be having the same conversation about either Buckley or National Review. But uh, yeah. at, at that time, Kirk, whose uh, whose uh, who's work, uh, the Conservative Mind. Had, had been reviewed in virtually every major intellectual journal and, and all the major newspapers as all of a sudden the emergence of something that, that hadn't been seen, uh, as the New York Times and others said, in uh, in generations, and that was the conservative mind, the conservative evangelical, and, uh, and, and there it was. Yeah. You mentioned partisan yeah. review, and, and for that reason, I've got mm-hmm. to jump into uh, the fact—I'm holding my hands right now—partisan review— Uh, series number three, Religion and the Intellectuals, from 1950. Mm. And uh, it's an incredible uh, little shot of history here. It's a snapshot. In it are uh, uh, Hannah Arendt, John Dewey, Paul Tillich, Alan Mm -hmm. Tate. Alan Tate was the outlier here. And uh, Sidney Hook, uh, also uh, W.H. Odin. You've got them in here. And here you have Partisan Review, which probably was the... I guess the equivalent of the New Criterion in Britain, kind of the most – every intellectual wanted to have it on his desk when someone walked in his office. Uh, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're awakening to the fact that, that American intellectuals in 1950 just might. But, the, but by the time you get to the end of these essays, the might has been replaced with probably not. Take religion yeah. seriously. The reason I bring that up is that's, uh, that's 66 years ago. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it really is, and and I would say, by the way, that I I think Ogden was as much of an outlier as Alan Tate, though in a slightly I I agree uh, different I agree way. Yeah, he was he was still very much in his. What he called his neo-Calvinist mode yes. <laughs> at that time, and uh, uh, and, and he could uh, br- bring some of the heavy lumber uh, against the um, the the easy conscience of the American left, and I think he and Alan Tate both do that there. Yeah, and that was I think maybe that's a kind of a um, um, an early example of what you were talking about a little earlier on the the sort of the the, the once a decade moment. When general interest magazines like Harper's and The Atlantic say, oh, we've been neglecting religion, we need to start thinking about that. And I think that was the partisan reviews version of that same moment. You know, well, let's gather together some people and let's hear what they have to say. And then you publish it and then, well, now we're done. You know, we've there, we've thought about religion. Uh, and, uh, and, and people think that that's done and dusted, as they say in England. It's a, you know, we've, we've done our, our due diligence. Um, but then what they find out you know, several years later is that there are still millions and millions of deeply religious people around, and uh, it turns out that that the secular left doesn't know how to think about them or how to deal with them now than they did 10 years ago.
0: Oh, or or, f- or 66 years, before years before ago. That. Yeah, yeah, a long or the, time yes, ago. Just, I'm, yeah.
1: I'm walking it back. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah uh when When I read your essay and uh it uh it came to my attention very early before the print edition was out i I, I read it immediately first of all i 'm just going to tell you i 'll read anything you write i 've appreciated uh, uh, your work over the years began reading when, you when you were writing for first things and uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and, and then uh, all of your books uh, all, all stacked here in a row and well marked. Uh, so I wasn't, I wasn't surprised that—I'm uh, not surprised now to know that Harper's asked you to write the uh, the essay, and I'm, I'm not at all surprised mm-hmm. that you wrote it as you did. Uh, just, just in response, I, I, I wanted to point out that the big fear I have is that—and uh, and, and, uh, this is not personal at all. Uh, it, it's just about yeah. how this conversation tends to go—is it, it that uh, the Christian intellectuals end up not being very Christian, by by the By the yeah. time the, uh, the the society is is ready to acknowledge that they just might be an intellectual yeah
1: yeah no i think i think I, I quote in there gene elstein 's comment that the problem of being a public intellectual is that over time you get more and more public and less and less intellectual um, but and I think something similar is uh, i I think that almost every day the Christian intellectual is faced with a pressure to compromise one side or the other of his or her identity, and and uh, this is something that I think about a lot. It's something I think it's not just something I think about a lot; it's something I pray about a lot because I know that I'll, I'm you know just given this somewhat personal turn. Right, as soon as I started working on this essay, uh, I knew what I needed to be prayerful about, which was. Yeah. Uh, overcoming the temptation to say what a Harper's audience will want to hear, um, and to try to stick to my guns as best I can, while at the same time being aware that I'm not talking to my fellow Christians, by and large there, that most of the readers of Harper's are not uh, religious believers, or not strong religious believers. right? And few of them, even the ones who are strong religious believers, are not people who have uh, a strong Christian vocabulary, um, and so I'm I'm writing as a Christian there for a secular audience, which means there are things that I would love to say about this whole phenomenon that I can't say for that audience.
0: No, I get uh, that and but, appreciate that. I, I wanted to ask you. I've got it, to make sure.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to, to add this one thing, but I've got to make sure that what I do say, I believe to be true. That oh. is, I know I can't say everything that I believe to be true, but. Lord, help me that I don't say anything that I don't really believe to be true.
0: Well, I'm certain of that. I I, I have to admit to you that uh, there was a certain uh, time bomb or perhaps better metaphor, a landmine in your article that uh, I just couldn't help running over because of of my Mm. own personal experience and intellectual pilgrimage. And that is uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, because Mm. uh, that, that gets to be very personal, because Reinhold Niebuhr personally taught a great deal of the professors that I had. And, yeah. uh, and who held him up as the great example? And uh, in the course yeah. of my my doctoral study and other things, I I, I read Reinhold Niebuhr uh, all of him and uh, and some of him mm. a great deal more than once and, and not without yeah. profit. Uh, I mean, I I learned a great yeah. deal about uh, uh, about how to read history in a different way than had I, mm. I and, and, and rich with Christian tradition. I, I I could draw a direct line from Augustine, I think, to Niebuhr in terms of mm-hmm. reading reading mm-hmm. human history. But yeah. I realized that there's very little theology here. That it, it's the importing mm. of uh, of an Augustinian, I'll even say, a biblical understanding of sin in a, in a social dimension. But I, yeah. uh, I, the more I read Niebuhr, the more I recognized uh, this is really not a Christian theologian at work. Maybe a mm. public intellectual, mm. but certainly there's not much distinctively yeah. Christian here.
1: I. I, I, w- I think I have a slightly uh, different view. I think uh, I, I think, uh, for instance, in, uh first of all, I think we want to distinguish between uh, Niebuhr as public figure and then whatever Niebuhr privately may have believed, which I think is highly—that's highly questionable. <laughs> and then, and then I think we also have to distinguish between Niebuhr at his best and Niebuhr at his worst, um, and and those things could come fairly closely together with one another. So, for instance, I think his. I think that Augustinian account of human sinfulness in uh, when he does the nature and destiny of man, I think he's really good on the nature of man, uh, because it is, I think, a clearly, strongly uh, Augustinian and Pauline and therefore biblical picture of fallen, unredeemed humanity. Um, But when he gets to the destiny of man, I think he starts getting hesitant because he wants to have a publicly accessible message. This is being published by a big New York publishing house, Charles Scribner's, and he 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 doesn't want to be too particularistically Christian at that point. And yet, isn't the whole, you know, Christian message is that there is one means of deliverance from who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> Paul says, and he, he's got a very clear and straightforward answer to that, that there's one one person who can do that. So uh, I, and I think that's where, so Niebuhr is great. He, I, the way that I think of it is that he's a great diagnostician. He's really good at diagnosing what's wrong. But then when it comes time to make a prescription for curing or fixing it, that's when he starts to get hesitant. And there's a really interesting moment when Auden, uh, you know, who is, again, you know, my, the, the figure I've studied the most, when Auden was a new Christian, though uh, had someone who had studied Christianity for a long time, in 1941, uh, when Niebuhr's book Christianity and Power Politics came out, Auden said something very similar to that. And he was a friend of, of the Niebuhrs, Niebuhr and his wife Ursula, who was English. But he was, he's quite strict with him there. He says, I see that, uh, that, that, that Dr. Niebuhr is very good at exposing the bogus. But sometimes you can be so good at exposing the bogus that you lose sight of what is authentic, what is genuine, and what is real. And he says, I wonder whether if Dr. Niebuhr saw a saint, that he would recognize that saint for what he is. (laughs) And that's a very good point, I think, and a good critique.
0: Professor Alan Jacobs' essay in Harper's Magazine is an example of the fact that a written essay can still almost immediately become a catalyst for conversation. It's interesting to note that at least at this point, most of that conversation seems to be among the Christians in terms of the question, where are now the Christian intellectuals? It's going to be interesting to see if the non-Christian world, that is the larger secular world, enters into this conversation at all. They've got no choice to know that this essay appeared in Harper's Magazine. It will be very interesting to see what others have to say about it. I ended up giving a public lecture at the uh, at the Clement Center, the the Johnson School of Public Policy, University of Texas on Mm -hmm. uh, on American mainline Protestant thought and foreign policy. And I really enjoyed doing that. And uh, in in so doing, it it took me back to reading Niebuhr all over again. And I was reminded of the fact and and this this was important to my my response to your article. Mm -hmm. I was reminded of just how important Reinhold Niebuhr was in the Cold War. And, yeah. uh, and And the fact that his uh, his realism uh in terms of uh, of prescriptions for American foreign policy became mm-hmm. very much appreciated by the Truman administration, also by the Eisenhower administration, yeah. and by Henry Luce, who was the founder yeah. of time, who put uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr on the cover but at the yeah. same time i was uh, I, I was reminded again of how routinely, Niebuhr was dismissed by the Academy and was rem- reminded of James Conant, the president of Harvard, trying to bring him to Harvard and, right. and, and to no avail. Right. This is such right. a mixed picture.
1: Yeah, it really is a mixed picture. The the uh, in, in the article, there, there's a point where I, I'm, I'm putting what I think to be the key issue. Uh, and, and the key issue is this, for the Christian public intellectual, if there is going to be such a thing, then that person has got to be both audible and free That is you've got you, you've got to be if you're going to be genuinely public, then you've got to be audible. you've got to be somewhere where people can hear you um, people across the the range of the culture can hear you but you've also got to be free you've got to be free to be able to speak out of genuine Christian conviction or else, what's the point of you why you know why why would you even be there if 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 you don't have that to say and and finding that 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 audibility uh, along with the freedom is is been really problematic for a long time and and though know, you can lose freedom not because people are constraining you but because you're constraining yourself and i think that is you mentioned this in your response—the the downfall of the liberal Protestant establishment in America—and I think that that downfall happened. Now, what a lot of people will, will, will say, a lot of people on, the, in the kind of liberal Protestant world, will say that well, we we lost our uh, you know we we, we stopped um, people stopped listening to us. And so we became marginal. And my argument is that, well, they stopped listening to you because you ceased to have anything distinctive to say. When you didn't want to say anything that was distinctively and particularly Christian, when you didn't have when, – when, when all you could really do was to say me too to what the rest right. of the world was saying, then why should they listen to you anymore? You, you became inaudible because you chose to speak in ways that were no longer – particularistically distinctively recognizably Christian. So, you know, everybody else is already saying that stuff. Who needs you? And I think they they marginalize themselves in that regard. I do think there was a certain self marginalizing by evangelicals and uh, traditionalist Catholics also, but for almost the opposite reasons.
0: Yeah, I want to follow that now uh, a bit, and and mm-hmm. I want to try to do it on your terms, or at least, the, mm-hmm. the, let's say, the terms you set with Mannheim's definition of the intellectual. So I'm go, I want yeah. to go back to Mannheim's understanding of cultural production. Mm. And, uh, and, and and so I want to ask you, when, when because this is also something that uh, engendered controversy in, in your essay, uh, you... I don't want to put words in your mouth, or just read from your essay, but you basically say or imply that evangelicals uh, or Christian intellectuals—better way mm-hmm. to put it—kind mm-hmm. uh, of willingly withdrew, and that it's mm-hmm. at least largely our fault that there are no Christian intellectuals in the larger public square. And uh, and you know, I go back. To, let's go back to Mannheim for a minute, moment yeah. with that cultural production. Um, mm-hmm. What didn't happen that should have? I, I mean, even trying to take it on those terms, I'm right. I'm up against a hard place trying to answer yeah. the question: What didn't happen that should have?
1: Well, you know, Dr. Mueller, I'm not sure that 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 um, I'm not sure that there was anything that should have. Um, here, here's here's what I mean by that: There, uh, Christians in uh, uh, by by I mean Orthodox biblical. Nicene Christians, um, evangelicals, but yes also traditionalist Catholics, found themselves in a situation where uh, the, uh, the the intelligentsia and the educated classes were to some degree drifting away from them. It was becoming more difficult for them to get a hearing. And they became concerned, I think, to make sure that their their positions didn't get lost and that those positions were passed down to the next generation of, of believers, and they chose to do that primarily, not exclusively by any means, but primarily by building up Christian institutions, which, in the post-war years with the economic boom, there was some money to do. Um, so that uh, again, this is not uh, this is an analogy rather than example, but. Uh, you know, Father Hezra, Notre Dame was able to transform Notre Dame into a research university because uh, those you know poor immigrant Catholics in the pre-World War II era who couldn't didn't have much money to to support Notre Dame had a lot more money after the war and were able to support it. And I think you see the creation of institutions like the National Association with Evangelicals, the founding of Fuller Seminary, and then existing institutions like Wheaton College, where I taught for 29 years, were able to develop um, their resources um, uh, to have for instance, smaller uh, class sizes, more individual attention to students. They were able to hire people who were more academically ambitious. They were able to build themselves up and strengthen themselves in such a way that they were able to pass down core Christian convictions to the next generation. But the more energy you spend doing that, the less energy is left over to be a player in the larger, uh, broader, uh, especially secular culture. and i 'm not sure i don 't I don't think that any of those people were wrong to make the choice that they made um, I, think I wonder if, they, if it was
0: really a choice i I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, want, to, I want to try a counter narrative here sure uh, which uh, which has to do with the embarrassment of uh, of the fundamentalist modernist controversy and the collapse of uh, yeah. of, uh, of the the disengagement of the uh, of conservative protestants the rise of the neo evangelicals uh, aukenge henry mm-hmm. uh and, and so many others and uh, th- they articulated almost exactly uh what you're talking about uh mm-hmm. as a, as as an ambition in the larger culture and 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 in order to get their uh, their union cards uh, every single one of them went to uh, to to a major northeastern university to do a phd yeah. and uh, to, uh, to, to, to to be able to gain entry, they made some interesting connections I mean they uh, clearly someone like j howard Pugh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, an analogue to Henry Luce at the time you know w- yeah. was very engaged yeah. in this yeah. but i 've gone back and read so many of their letters and and, and so many of the documents and, and i 'll admit carl henry was uh, was a mentor to me, mm-hmm. and I look at it and I recognize. Their experiment in terms of that larger cultural influence really got snuffed out at the start because it didn't matter if they had a Ph.D. from Boston University or Harvard or Yale. They still weren't of the uh, of the class that was going to be welcome into the conversation, even in Time magazine, even in the 1950s.
1: Yeah. Um Yeah. I, I I'm still wondering, though, well, I, I, you know, that's a very plausible alternative narrative to mine, and it's not wholly alternative because I absolutely recognize all those forces. It's one of the reasons why I say in the article that to some extent these Christian intellectuals were self-exiled but not wholly. Um, and, and frankly, uh, I decided in writing that article that— For the sake—this was the part of the article that I wrote most explicitly for my fellow Christians, that I most wanted my fellow Christians to hear, was that I think we we do not focus often enough on our own responsibility for that marginalization, which doesn't mean that there were not huge forces pressing to marginalize us. But I think that there has been a tendency— for among many Christians, not all, among many Christians, to to say, well, they're marginalizing me no matter what, so why should I even try? And then and I also, think that's fair. Yeah, and I think also there's a tendency. You know, I've seen this a lot with younger scholars. When I sent off mm-hmm. my book and it was rejected, or I sent off my article and it was rejected, that's a clear sign of anti-Christian prejudice. And I think, well, but maybe your maybe your work wasn't all it could be. Maybe maybe you could do better. And and so that has has been something I wanted to emphasize, especially to younger scholars and would-be scholars, my students um, at Wheaton and now at Baylor, is that let's make sure that we're good enough. If we're good enough and we still get rejected, well, then this is a kind of very, very tiny martyrdom, you know, and we should accept it with grace and gratitude. But let's make sure that we're doing, doing our part. And I do think that for Henry, as much as Henry, for instance, Carl Henry, wanted to be able to speak to that larger um, uh, uh, society, I think his more pressing concern was a loss of theological integrity within the evangelical camp. And I think that's where most of his energies went. Not
0: all. I think. I think it did later. I I think the Carl Henry, who was the founding, uh, 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 the uh, the general editor of uh, of Christianity Today, uh, in uh, in in its founding era, left Fuller precisely to try to have that kind of impact. He he hired designers to try to make Christianity Today. Look like the kind of magazine yeah, yeah. That, uh, that, that that would fit he, he's, he studiously built a, a board of editors that went beyond what I could do as a matter of fact in terms <laughs> yeah. of theological breadth and uh, and put all that together and uh, had the funding to make sure it was paid for for a few years and then yeah. sent to virtually everyone without to without cost in the, in, in Washington and New York and Boston. And to no effect, so uh, the, the, yeah. we, we could talk about this. I want to make the point that I think your narrative is not wrong. I just think there yeah. are, are two narratives that are both right here, and I worry about one without the other
1: yeah you're, I, I, I agree with that wholly i made I made a deliberate choice to emphasize certain parts of the story which meant necessarily having to minimize other parts of it and so this what you're saying is a very welcome corrective and of course if they had given me if they had given me 50,000 words rather than 6,000 words I still wouldn't have been sure. able to tell the whole story because as I think our conversation has shown this is an immensely rich and complex subject and worthy sure. of much more investigation than it's gotten
0: I don't know that any one of us can know the whole story yeah. uh, because uh, there, there's a human dynamic that's at work here as well. Yeah. You know, um, just in terms of, uh, of, of the kind of intellectual context uh, that, that we face today— uh, one response to your article, I don't know if you've seen it or not, appeared in The Christian Century, which uh, then and now is the mouthpiece of, of mainline Protestantism insofar as it still has a mouth or a mouthpiece. Yeah. But, um, you know, writing in that, in response to you, Carol Howard Merritt wrote uh, that, that uh, what, what, what was now the great moral fact is the LGBT revolution. And mm-hmm. and then she wrote, quote, and if that means Christian intellectuals lost their seat at the table, then so be it, end quote. And you know, I, I think that makes the, the issue, the reality, the challenge far more difficult than it was in the 1950s, yeah. 60s, 70s, or 80s. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think whether it's your institution or mine, not to mention every aspect of American culture, we're going right. to feel that pinch. Oh, I think that's exactly right,
1: and and I think this is this is uh, you know it's interesting because the the, the argument there, I did see that. I, I haven't responded to it. I wasn't quite sure how to respond to it because the article said, well, you know, Jacobs, you may say this and you may say that, but what I hear is is white male privilege. And I thought, and I just don't know how, I don't have a way to respond to that. You know, I mean, I, I, I can be responsible for what I say. I can even be responsible for what I fail to say. I can't be responsible for what you hear. Um, and so I, I just kind of gave up on finding a, a, a way to respond to that. But I think that's a, it's an interesting move because if the, um, the, the, the sexual revolution is, is where it's happening and that the extension of the, the, uh, the, the, the liberating effects of the, the sexual revolution to gays and lesbians and bisexual and transgender and queer uh, people uh, and, and, and so forth, if that's where it's all happening, then what does what does Christianity have to say to that? Um, I mean, what what do you add? Um, uh, I, I don't I don't even see. It seems to me that if that is the revolution, then it's a revolution that's happened without any, and that's that's glor- and it's a glorious revolution, and it's to be celebrated. It was something that happened without any help from Christians. So I don't see what Christians have to say about it. You know, it seems to me that there's, that if you, you're identifying the Christian century or you're identifying yourself as a Christian with a movement which isn't interested in you and doesn't need you. So no, that's exactly
0: right. And and that raises another issue, which which would be another fascinating conversation. And that's this. If you're disqualified because you hold the wrong position, uh, according to the current intellectual elites on questions of gender, sexuality and personal identity, then they've got no heroes working backward or heroines for that matter. Right. And and so, you know, quite honestly, a Reinhold Niebuhr or even uh, well, it's hard to come up with anyone that we we could list, you know, a a Daniel Bell or a, a. uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. None of them will survive the scrutiny that is demanded here. If that's going to be the uh, the required entry card,
1: I I think that's right. And I think I think you see this. You can see how this happened. This is, uh, as you know, one of my arguments is that while Christians were working hard to strengthen their own institutions, the sexual revolution was happening right under their noses, and and so you have somebody like like Richard John Newhouse, who is perfectly welcome to the table as long as he is an anti-war activist, as long, exactly. as, he's, as, long as he's saying that, you know, the Vietnamese government is God's instrument for bringing America to its knees, uh, for humbling the, you know, arrogant American project, when he says that, and when he uses biblical and prophetic language to say it, he's, he's welcome at the table. But then when he said, well, wait a minute, if, what, if as Christians we're supposed to care about those who are most helpless, about the least of these, then who is more helpless, who is less than an unborn child? And as soon as he said that, as soon as he said that, that social justice in a Christian point of view has to be social justice for the unborn as well— as for those who are living in poverty whom he ministered to for years and years, then, then he was done. It was over. And so it's not something that it, it's, it, it, I think what, what we're being told in any number of ways is that Christians cannot bear prophetic witness to sexuality. They can, you can do, you can, I, you, you can be on board the train, You're not bearing prophetic witness, then. You're just agreeing with what everybody else has already come to believe before you did.
0: Absolutely. And with Newhouse, yeah.
1: Or you're out, right? Those Uh, are the only options.
0: Oh, yes. You know, that's one of the points I wanted to make in response to you is also about Newhouse, because following him and knowing him through that Mm -hmm. uh, period—by the way, I didn't know him when he was most famous as an anti-war activist because I was probably in middle school. But but nonetheless— you, you know, he was in many ways a man of the left, and, and admired as a man of the left. He uh, he had a good education, but he did not hold a PhD. Certainly not from an Ivy League institution. Right. Uh, but he was a man. To, to use Mannheim's definition, he was a man of massive cultural production. The man, yeah, the man wrote, and he and he contributed, and he wrote well and uh, and, and timely. And, and then I, I would say the second phase in newhouse 's uh, intellectual pilgrimage was was where he, with uh, someone like Peter Berger, came to an mm-hmm. understanding. They started talking about mediating structures and yep. and uh, you know, t- taking a deeper view on the other side of the world on poverty and the great society and all the rest of recognizing that it didn 't turn out the way they thought it would right uh, at the time and asking the basic questions that led him uh, in many right. ways uh, to, to the very thing you 're talking about but then. At the end of his life, he was just completely dismissed by, by yeah. the very people who had celebrated him, and all he did was say the other half of what he'd always believed. Right,
1: uh, and 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 I and I think what had happened is, and this is it sort of an interesting test case, right? As he saw that he that the doors that he had pre, that had previously been open to him were now closed to him. That was when he began. It was only then that he began the kind of institution building that led to the creation of the Institute yes. for Religion in Public Life and the and the creation of First Things. Um, and and so it raises a certain kind of strategic question, right? Do, would I say no, Richard? That was wrong. You shouldn't have started First Things. You should have kept pounding on the door of Time and Newsweek and Harper's and the Atlantic, you know, until they let you in. Um, I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say, I, I think, I think sure. that would have been fruitless because I think by that time the Rubicon had been crossed. And that's why I say, I don't know how you, you ha, you now have such two radically different languages, moral and spiritual languages that I don't know how you can cross that. And, and I want to say one thing, I want to make sure I, I, I say one thing before I get away. <laughs> and, and, and that is this, that, um, The fact that I'm writing about that in Harper's, I don't think is necessarily a positive sign because what I'm allowed to write about is Christianity. That is, I'm a Christian who is allowed to write about Christianity. But what if I wanted to write as a Christian about foreign policy? What if I wanted to write? I mean, that, you know, neither was able to get away with that. that, That's one thing that, that, that I think is still kind of fascinating is that, Niebuhr could say uh, the Christian tradition, and especially the Reformed tradition, has really important things that everyone needs to hear about power politics, about international affairs, about foreign policy. And that's absolutely unimaginable to me now, that a Christian would be allowed to speak as a Christian about a topic that isn't specifically religious.
0: So let me go back in time and, uh, and quote uh, someone uh, you'll know very well mm. who told the story about being a graduate student at the University of Virginia and teaching a class in basic composition. And uh, it, th- this was you writing when you said you <laughs> remember walking to class every day with two other instructors who had their own sections of basic composition the same time mm. I did. You say one of them was uh, 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 completely committed to feminism. The other was uh, completely committed to Marxism. Both of them were able to get up and, uh, and, and be themselves and intellectually tie their, uh, their worldview and their ideology to what they were teaching. Yeah. You said no one said boo about uh, those, those instructors teaching that way, but as you say— if you had gotten up and said, "Quote, well, my passion in life is the gospel of Jesus Christ," so we're going to center our basic composition class around the teachings of Jesus, <laughs> yeah. you would have been out on your can in no time. You exactly, said. exactly. So, so that this is some, this is something you knew even then, and of course, that's right. uh, that's many years ago. Has the situation well, changed?
1: Um, n- no, not. I don't think so. Um, at least, um, n- not very often. Um, there, uh, you know, I. I I'm thinking about University of Virginia. You know, I, I know people who are strong and open Christians there, but they're in yes. the religion department uh, for the most part. Uh, that is to be able to speak as. Now, there are some, um, you know, who are who who are very open about being Christians, but they're in, in other departments. I'm thinking about uh, there are people in uh, economics. There are people sociology, in sociology. Um, and, but they tend, their, their work, their formal academic work, tends right. not to be explicitly Christian in, in its content, um, And uh, but whereas in the religion department they can do that. And the only reason they can even do it in the religion department is that for some years they had the chair of their department, Robert Wilkin, one of Richard John Newhouse's Absolutely. oldest friends, um, yes. was someone who said – It's okay, he argued this when he was the the president of the American Academy of Religion. He said, if we don't speak for the religious traditions, who will? Um, and, And he wanted to embody that in his department and say, even though we're a public university, it's still okay for us to have people here who speak from within and on behalf of religious traditions. A bold move, but that's not something that has been generally followed, it seems to me.
0: I know we're about out of time, but I have to tell you, uh, I, wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't just paying you a compliment when I said I read and, and read all of your work eagerly. And I appreciate the fact that I think you represent, uh, in many ways, one who contributes uh, to both worlds. I mean, your books are published yeah. by Urbans, Brazos, uh, but also uh, Harper on the one side. But, but then uh, Oxford University Press, Princeton University Press, uh, yeah. I greatly appreciated your book on – the Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, and I, I guess in a lot of ways my, my favorite is your little biography, The Book of Common Prayer, uh, oh, published it by Princeton. <laughs> yeah, I so that leads that. me to ask you, mm-hmm. wh- what are you working on now? What, what, what is your current intellectual and writing project?
1: Um, I, I have two projects right now. Uh, one is a shorter book um, that's called How to Think, A Guide for the Perplexed. Um, it, it, my, my, I've been so distressed by the character of our public discourse in the last couple of years, and and I feel so much of it happens because people just aren't thinking. And I wanted to say, well, here's what I've learned over 30 years of teaching about about thinking. Uh, And that's a brief book, which I took some time out from my larger project to write. But the larger project is one that this Harper's piece is something of an offshoot of. Um, It's going to be called, I believe, uh, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Intellectuals and World War II. Uh, Because I think World War II was a time, as I suggested in my article, of great renewal for Christian thinking and the need to bring distinctively Christian thinking to bear on social and political issues. And Niebuhr is not a major figure in that because I'm I'm of your view that Niebuhr didn't do that as well as he should. So my figures are C.S. Lewis, W.H. Auden, Jacques Maritain, T.S. Eliot, and Simone Weil. And uh, I'm trying to weave the five of them together into this story about the renewal of a certain kind of Christian intellectual life in what would seem an unpropitious time for it. And that book, uh, if God spares me and allows me to finish it, is going to be published by Harvard University Press. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Well, I will, uh, with many others, await that eagerly. Professor Alan Jacobs, thank you so much for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Alan Jacobs' essay in Harper's Magazine is an example of the fact that a written essay can still almost immediately become a catalyst for conversation. It's interesting to note that at least at this point, most of that conversation seems to be among the Christians in terms of the question, where are now the Christian intellectuals? It's going to be interesting to see if the non-Christian world, that is the larger secular world, enters into this conversation at all. They've got no choice to know that this essay appeared in Harper's Magazine. It will be very interesting to see what others have to say about it. I really enjoyed my conversation with Professor Jacobs, and, you know, one of the things I think it demonstrates is the fact that when you're looking at a question of this importance, there probably is more than one narrative that needs to be brought in as a part of the explanation, not just the background, but the foreground. And when you think about the two explanations we were talking about, one that is largely internal, you might say, and one that is external, both of them do play an important role. But the very idea of a Christian intellectual is also really important. A younger generation of Christians needs to understand that this is not a new urgency. It was very important going back to the earliest ages of the church. The church fathers themselves were very concerned about the Christian and the intellectual life, and they, of course, contributed greatly to the development of the entire world of thought of their era— An historian like Peter Brown at Princeton has very skillfully demonstrated to us that eventually the thinkers within the church became the thinkers of the larger culture. There were other thinkers as well, of course, but it is impossible to talk about the intellectual world of medieval Europe without understanding that the terms were largely set by those who were only described as Christian intellectuals. But in the modern age, we understand that something has happened, and the intellectual history of that is not something that can be traced in just a short amount of time. But certainly, we have to talk about the Renaissance, and the Enlightenment, and the great turn to the subject, and how all of a sudden the human thinker was reconceptualized, and the human thinker's place in the larger cosmos, and in the larger world of ideas, was also similarly revised and transformed. So what does this tell us? It tells us that the question of the Christian intellectual is still a pressing question. But for the Christian, even as we take very seriously both of those words, Christian and intellectual, the word Christian has to be the most important issue. The most important issue for the Christian intellectual is making certain that even as we fulfill an intellectual responsibility, we are beyond that. More importantly and prior, we are faithful as Christians. That's the biggest issue for Christians in thinking about this issue. There is the larger public responsibility. But one of the things I think Think we have to keep in mind is that to some extent that is outside our control. But at the very least, we should be ready. As we read in the New Testament, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. At the very least, we need to be ready for the opportunity. And furthermore, when Alan Jacobs goes back to Mannheim's definition of the intellectual, and we look at the very issue of cultural production. Christians can hardly complain about not being heard if they are not contributing, if they're not involved in the cultural production, writing books, writing essays, making arguments, doing the kind of academic scholarship that's important, making a contribution to the larger intellectual context. If we aren't doing that, then clearly we have missed the opportunity and we are in no position to complain that somehow we have been shut out. But on the other hand, we are being shut out. And the people who are shutting the door are telling us that they're shutting the door. But we're going to be watching what takes place in coming years, understanding that I love the way Alan Jacobs put it. If indeed we are shut out in terms of much of that elite intellectual conversation, individually in terms of the Christian intellectual and his or her responsibility, I like the way he put it. That is a minor martyrdom. There will be Christians who will be shut out from professions. There are going to be Christians who are going to be shut out from academic posts and intellectual contribution in many different arenas. And as we discussed, that's not really new. It is indeed a judgment upon a secular society, but it isn't new. I also want to say that when I look at the contribution made by Alan Jacobs in his books and in his writings, in his public intellectual contribution, I think it's clear he has been at least heard by many in the larger world, outside of Christianity. But I dare also to think that his most avid readers and his greatest influence is with his own students and in the Christian world, where he has directed the majority of his academic and publishing contributions. I think Alan Jacobs is right when he points to the fact that the evangelical world largely turned to institution building as an alternative intellectual universe to the larger secular culture. As doors were shutting at institutions like the University of Chicago and Stanford and Northwestern and Harvard and Yale and Princeton, evangelicals began to build our own institutions. I also agree that there has been a renaissance and revitalization in terms of the intellectual life of those institutions, and for that we should be very thankful. We should be incredibly thankful that there is an entire army of young Christian intellectuals or young Christians who are learning how to think and learning how to do scholarship and learning how to contribute, and for that we should be very, very thankful. But, As we come to a conclusion, I make the judgment that a Christian who operates as a Christian intellectual on behalf of the church, first and foremost, is making a greater contribution than we will ever be able to make in the larger culture. That cultural influence is not negligible, and it's not unimportant. But what's first and foremost for the Christian intellectual is understanding that our most important faithfulness begins in the home, in the congregation, and amongst Christians, and to Christians. No apology for that. Thanks again to my guest, Professor Alan Jacobs, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.